Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Abel, and we're here with Dr. Dave Cotter, who is the Director of the Department of Military History. Dr. Cotter. Well, it's good to be here, John. Uh, We are here to learn a little bit about Dr. Cotter's life and career. So uh, give us a start. Tell us about your academic background. Well, I I took a a degree in history as an undergraduate uh, and then got my first uh, master's degree at the University of Massachusetts. Uh, in preparation for um, uh, service on the faculty at the United States Military Academy, the Department of History there. Um, I, uh, I got a second master's degree at the United States Naval War College uh, and a third one out of Gratz College uh, in Holocaust and Genocide Studies, a topic area I had become interested in. Uh, and then I followed that up with a, a dissertation and completed a doctorate uh, in the same subject area. Okay, and tell us about your um, background in, in the Army. Uh, started off as an enlisted soldier, started off as a private uh, back in 1979, uh, decided after one look at the pay tables that I probably needed to be an officer, um, <clears throat> and was commissioned in, in 1983 and, uh, and served from 1983 until 2011 as an officer. Uh, I retired as a colonel. Um, I had the good fortune to command two field artillery batteries. Uh, one transportation battalion, uh, and an area support group uh, in the Middle East. Okay, so given that you you have an extensive service background, uh, why history? History is just critical uh, to our profession. Uh, The idea of being able to understand uh, and relate and be able to synthesize new ideas based on, on past experience uh, it marks all the greatest leaders in the Army and the Navy and the Air Force for that matter. Uh, it, is the, it, is, it is a contextual basis uh, by which we render judgments. Uh, and, and to not be a student of history and to be a member of this profession is, is to be uh, inadequately armed in my opinion. Okay, and tell us a little bit about the, the roles you have played here at CGSC before you became the DMH director. Yeah, well, I, I, I first arrived here, uh, I, I was, uh, my, my first uh, 13 years in the Army, I was an artillery officer. Um, following Desert Storm, uh, I, I made the switch to the, to the sustainment side of the world, and I became a transportation officer. Uh, and that was largely due to, the, due to the transportation challenges that were presented to, to our, uh, our Army in, in the Middle East. Uh, and the different and innovative ways that they had to be solved. Uh, <clears throat> and so what I did was I made the, the jump to transportation, uh, and I got to command uh, a battalion there. Uh, but, but it was following my, uh, my colonel-level command where they sent me uh, here, at, at my request, I might add, <laughs> uh, so that I could be the director of the Department of Logistics and Resource Operations. Uh, and there, I got to bring recent field and, and combat theater experience to the department. Uh, the department was very mature at that point, and, and they had a very well-developed curriculum. And what I did was I brought a little bit of a fresh perspective in, made some minor tweaks to, to the curriculum, et cetera. Uh, was not able to stay in that department very long because uh, the, the commandant uh, decided that I needed to be the director of the school. 
and, and I did. I, I went and, and I was the director of the school for about two years. Uh, and after I, I retired, um, I, I, I knew that this is where I wanted to be. But I also knew I couldn't go from being uh, the boss to just a, a member of the faculty. Uh, I, I needed to, to create some separation. Uh, so I went to Afghanistan for a couple of years and, and, and uh, got involved in up-armoring uh, the new vehicles, the new family of, of lighter vehicles. Um, <clears throat> many of our soldiers were, were, were being injured severely in those, uh, those vehicles. And the, the program that I got involved in uh, uh, up-armored the vehicles a little bit more, but also had some very innovative suspension additions. Uh, that, that, that significantly lessened the severity of the, of the injuries to the soldiers. And then I got to come back uh, to, to the school and I, I taught uh, in a Department of Com Command and Leadership for about three years and then had the opportunity uh, to move to my first love, the Department of Military History, and I did that in 2016 uh, and don't intend to leave. <laughs> So you have a little bit different role from a lot of the people we talk to in that you, you are teaching faculty, but you also have this administrative side. Um, so walk us through a little bit. Uh, we, we kind of understand what you do as administrator or the equivalent of a department chair, but walk us through a little bit of what you do on the teaching side besides the core at AOC. Well, it's interesting because the curriculum here uh, changes. It, it must modify to meet the changing uh, the changing. Uh, challenges that our, our world presents uh, the military officers that are coming through uh, this institution. Uh, but in, 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 you know, to roll out the standard history bumper sticker, it's not just about change, it's also about continuity. Uh, and what happens when you have a member of the faculty uh, like me that's been around for a while, uh, I am able to help with the integrative uh, continuity of the course. And so I provide that kind of uh, advice to, to, to the college leadership. Um, uh, frequently our, our general officers come in and they're, um, they're always um, in awe of the history curriculum because uh, most, as we mentioned earlier, most uh, successful and senior military leaders are, are steeped in history and they're very interested in what we do and how we do it um, and, and they offer suggestions um, and, and that type of thing. But in terms of the whole course and the, the integrated uh, aspect of, of how we try to make the curriculum uh, applicable, uh, useful to the soldiers when they go out to the field, um, that's where I can play a, a more valuable role because of the fact that I've been here for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, what do you teach besides the core and AOC classes in terms of electives or other teaching opportunities? <clears throat> I have taught quite a few electives here. Um, I've, I've taught Alpha 491, which is logistics for XOs, and, and what it is is it's a, uh, uh, basically it's, it's all the housekeeping duties that any organization has that usually falls onto the desk of an executive officer at a battalion level. Um, and I recommend to all of our operations career field officers, the maneuver officers, that they take that course. Uh, because it not, will not only uh, keep their bosses out of trouble, but it will also make them better officers in the long run. Uh, in our department, I participate in, uh, in Dr. Hull's Alpha 677 war crimes class. Um, I am uh, one of the principal uh, instructors in Alpha 734, which is the Genocide and Mass Atrocity Seminar. It's a, it's, it, it, it consumes the entire first term of electives uh, and also involves a trip to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum every year. 
Um, and then I also teach uh, the Department of Military History's elective on the history of genocide. So uh, you've mentioned both in terms of your academic background and your teaching this focus on um, genocide studies and the Holocaust. Uh, what brought you to that? Well, first of all, for, for the historians in the world, uh, we can all understand uh, that this is a very dynamic field. I mean, every day a new archive opens up and, and, and new uh, evidence emerges that help. And, and I'm basically talking about the Holocaust in this regard, but also uh, the Armenian genocide and, and you know, the Bosnian uh, documents that, are, that, are, are, uh, that come to the fore uh, with some regularity. Uh, so it's a very exciting field for a historian. Um, but what happened was, um, uh, when I was the director of the school, uh, Representative Israel from the state of New York um, w wanted to uh, imbue professional military education with an appreciation of genocide in general and the Holocaust in particular. Uh, and funded uh, an opportunity for a number of our instructors to, to participate in the, House, the, the Auschwitz Foundation's instructional program uh, in, in Poland uh, for about a three-week uh, course. Um, as the director, I couldn't go, but what I was able to do is send a number of officers and, and civilian professors to go, and, and they came back and um, were extremely excited about the prospect of being able to teach this. Um, uh, and, you know, I hearken back to, you know, watching sect-on-sect uh, -sect violence in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's related to this topic as well, and many of us had to, we saw that and lived through that. So the, uh, the when I returned to the school um, to, to, to teach in the Department of Command and Leadership, uh, they were the principal uh, uh, movers of this, of this curriculum, and, uh, and I, I, I joined that group. Um, uh, and, and uh, decided to take a, a master's degree in the discipline um, and then was able to get in the, uh, the nation's first online, well, it does have some residency requirements, but mm -hmm. the first uh, distance, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. PhD program in that discipline. And that's at Gratz College? It is at Gratz College in Melrose Park, Pennsylvania, yes. So I think it might be a fairly common, maybe immediate reaction for a modern, particularly American listener to think, you know, Holocaust, horrible, in the now increasingly distant past, American soldiers probably will never contact something like that, probably, hopefully, will never be involved in something like that. So why is it so important to study this stuff now, you know, more than 70 or 80 years after it happened? Uh, it, it's important because this type of activity generally happens in the less stable parts of the world. Um, and, as, as recent history shows us, the U.S. military tends to get involved in the less stable parts of the world. As I mentioned earlier, I was able to, I witnessed myself some, some uh, violence of this type, this genre, um, in, in Iraq uh, and to a lesser extent in Afghanistan. Uh, but there's a, you know, the opportunity, uh, wrong word, but the chance of, of one of our officers encountering this it's not as slight as you might think. Um, and there are a number of genocides going on in the world right now uh, that 
to the pop uh, to the front of the newspapers with regularity uh, are the is the plight of the Rohingya in, in Myanmar and of course the Uyghur population in China mm-hmm. uh, and so these these are extant uh, events they're they're ongoing um, and, and I'm not suggesting for a second that we're going to go into the Uyghur region of China or to or, or to Myanmar uh, but what I am saying is those are the types of places where these things can happen and there's a you know there's always a chance that we could end up in one of those places so this is very germane uh, to the 21st century military professional and uh, a question I ask uh, all of our faculty who study uh, topics like this this is a very dark subject it can take you to very dark places so so how do you stay sane when you're reading through these firsthand accounts um, hope <laughs> uh, there, there is there's frequently uh, there, there's a good message that can be devolved um, and, and understanding, the, the increased understanding is, is always very helpful. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of a checklist of, of, of items that a fellow named Gregory Stanton posted on, online called the, the Ten Stages of Genocide. And if you look at those ten stages, and it talks about discrimination and, and, and ostracization and demonization and those, these steps that you can go through, and they're, they're sometimes concurrent and they sometimes overlap, uh, but at the end of the day, if you look at those things, you can look around the world and see where some of those things are happening today and, and kind of get an idea of, of you know, what the pulse of this type of activity is out there. Um, and you know you can't prove a negative for for sure. It's just one of one of the things in life that we have to deal with. But there have been times when when uh, when when forces have been able to come in and overlay some stability into an area that looked like it might have been on the precipice of of a, of a, of a more significant outbreak. So perhaps the Balkans in the nineties. That's a pretty good example. I mean, it certainly could have been much much worse. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you could make the argument in Libya. I mean, there's, there's several other cases that you could do that. So it is a dark topic, uh, but we also have to know that, you know, humans can, can be pretty tough on each other. Mm-hmm. So. All right, let's, let's uh, hopefully end on a happier topic. What is your favorite story from history? My favorite story? Well, I'm going to go back to, to uh, genocide and mass atrocities. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I found so remarkable... Uh, what, there's a, the emerging study of women in the Holocaust uh, has brought forth a number of different perspectives on how to look at uh, the, the, the trials that people have to go through. And there was a very interesting story um, that was relayed. Uh, we, we, we can all sort of imagine that people in a, in a, uh, a concentration camp, a labor camp, uh, and suffering from terrible hunger, the last thing they want to talk about is food. And that made perfect sense to me. Um, but I was reading a, 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 a book by Delia Ofer, and, and, and she talks about um, food talk. Because in the women's areas of camps, or in the women's prison, for instance, at Ravensbrück, um, they would talk about food to build community. Uh, they would talk about food to build solidarity. Uh, they would trade recipes. Uh, and this was something that was abhorrent to the men. Uh, they would absolutely not talk about food at all because it just made the hunger pang so much worse. Uh, but I would never have considered that. So that I thought that was just kind of a great story. So. Yeah, this is very inspiring. Uh, Dr. Cotter, thank you. And thank you. 
Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.